Good morning, church. It is again a privilege to stand before you and open the Word of God with God's people. I say that just about every time that I am in the pulpit, and I don't want my repetition of that sentiment to be taken um, as somehow lacking in meaning. Um, I always feel a, um, a real sense of awe and wonder as we open God's Word. This is the revealed mind of God to His people, and uh, I want you to understand the uh, the seriousness that I take the preaching hour and um, again as always I just ask you to pray for me and pray for us together as we open God's word and seek to hear from our God this morning well we're going to continue today if you have your Bibles go ahead and turn in the book of Ezra to chapter 7 we're going to continue today with this seventh chapter of Ezra um, if you will permit me I'd like to briefly recap last week to bring us all uh, into one uh, course of thought as we begin to look at the second part of Ezra today. Last week we introduced the character of Ezra. We had been in the book of Ezra for some time before actually seeing Ezra show up. So we had seen a, a course of events through human history that did not include Ezra and last week we had our first introduction to the man for whom this book is named. We saw that he was used by God to lead this second wave of exiles out of Babylonia as they returned to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem. And we saw that Ezra was a scribe. Um, his occupation was to, to copy and to learn and study the law of God. And we're told farther uh, in Ezra 7 and verse 10 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And we noted that this desire for God's law ran much deeper than a mere devotional commitment to Scripture. But this was the desire and the intent of his heart, and it was to reflect God's perfect holiness in Ezra's thoughts, in his deeds, and in his words as he taught the truths of God's law. We look to this example of Ezra as a pattern even for ourselves as we seek to do the same thing. And we took the time to establish, having, having looked at Ezra as our pattern, we took the time to establish that the law of God should not be a foreign concept to the New Testament believer. Uh, we defined the law in simple terms. Basically, we said the law of God is that righteous standard of God's perfect holiness, which he requires of all of those he has created. And as creatures created in the image of God, we have a, uh, an obligation to commit ourselves to the moral principles that God has laid forth in his law, which is basically a description of God's perfect character. In so doing, we attempted to demonstrate what we're calling the abiding validity of the law of God for believers today. And we did that according not just to some theological perspective, but we did that according to the words of Paul in Romans. And we established the abiding validity of the law of God even on the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, we understood from Paul's letter to Timothy that the law was a good thing if it was used lawfully. And we took the time to sort of explain what it means in our context today to use the law lawfully. To do that, we examined three different types of law. We looked at the law as, first of all, being moral. There are certain commands of God that are simply moral laws that everyone, regardless of your place within the scope of human history, is obliged to follow. We saw that God's moral law represents his righteous standing and that it is binding on all men in all times. We also looked at a second type of law that we've called ceremonial law. And these would be those particular laws that point us to 
the coming Messiah. Okay, we saw that the laws, the ceremonial laws, would include um, things like the sacrificial law given to ancient Israel. We saw the, even the more sort of strange laws from our perspective of not mixing fibers. Um, th those types of laws were given to uh, keep the prophetic line and lineage of Christ pure among the nations. And we talked about how given the arrival of Christ and his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and his triumphal ascension, we've seen that those laws that are deemed ceremonial have been fulfilled in Christ. And we are no longer obligated to keep those specific laws, those historical laws that were given as types and shadows of Christ. Furthermore, we said for us to endeavor to keep those laws, for us to try to go back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament would not just be unnecessary, but it would in fact be sinful as it would represent a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. So if we're going to use the law of God lawfully, we're going to adhere to the morality of God's law, but we're not going to go back and recreate the symbolism of the Old Testament ceremonial law. We also considered the civil law that was given to the nation of Israel. And we saw that while that particular theocratic society is no more, following 70 AD, the ability of the nation of Israel to maintain the civil code that was handed to them um, was no more. They didn't have the ability to do that. That had passed away with the passing away of that theocratic system. But even though those, those laws have passed away in that sense, there is still a lesson for us to learn as we consider the civil laws of ancient Israel. We don't have to keep the specifics of those laws. However, the general equity as our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, as Westminster also teaches us, um, the general equity of those ancient laws have an abiding moral instruction for us today. So as we understand what it means to keep the law lawfully, we have to understand these three categories. And the discussion of these three types of law really served last week as a framework for us to consider how we can follow Ezra's example of learning, doing, and teaching the law of God. So today, as we continue in chapter 7, we're going to pick up with verse 11. And I'd like for us to continue to think about what it means for us to follow Ezra's pattern of learning, living, and teaching the law of God. Now, just a, a quick note here as we, as we get ready to tackle this next section. Um, there is a, uh, I'm, I'm finding as I preach more and more, there is a difference between preaching historical narrative and preaching, for example, the doctrinal epistles of the New Testament. Um, within the, the historical narrative, we have sort of a straightforward presentation of events as they occurred in human history, and that's what we see in the book of Ezra. Whereas a doctrinal epistle presents theological truths. Um, they're stated, affirmed, and applied. Well, as we approach our text today, I want us to keep in mind that this is, in fact, historical narrative, and there are certain events that we need to lay out, and there are certain explanations that we need to, to undertake to understand the flow of the text today. However, I want us to do that and work through this fairly lengthy section of historical narrative without getting so bogged down in this history lesson that we, that we miss the arc of this, uh, this narrative. We miss in the arc of this narrative the underlying theological truths that are there. 
Okay, so we're going we're gonna to try to keep two things in, in view. We're going to try to understand the story as presented in Ezra of, of the second wave of exiles returning and Artaxerxes, the wicked king, and his, uh, his participation in that even. We want to get those events in our mind and at the same time be open to recognizing the theological truths that we find in this passage. So given the length of this passage today, we're going to depart from our normal way of just reading through the text and then going back and working section by section. What I'd like to do is, is three things today. I want to briefly summarize the events of Ezra 7, 11 through 28, okay, just to get the, the big picture in our mind. From there, I want to work through section by section, providing some commentary and some detail. And then at the end, I'd like to extrapolate two primary theological truths from this text that we can take uh, from this and learn from, okay? So as we, uh, as we prepare to do this, keeping in mind uh, that this chapter is fundamentally about Ezra's commitment to God's rules and precepts, and as we, as we think through this, as we work through this today, I think that we need to take a moment and pray and ask God to guide our, our sermon for today. So let's pray. God, as I stand before your people, um, feeling totally inadequate, Lord, to deliver any message from you. We ask, God, that you guide our time together. We ask that you, um, that you lead our hearts and our minds into all truth, and that, Lord, you protect us from uh, any error, that you guard us from any misunderstandings, and that you give us perfect clarity with regard to what you have to say from your word. Lord, help us to see that regardless of the, of the type of literature, be it historical narrative or prophecy or um, New Testament epistles, whatever the, whatever the text is that we're looking at, God, help us to see that when your word is read that you have spoken to your people. And God, give us all a high, high view of Scripture. Give us all a, a reverence, for thus saith the Lord according to your word. God, I pray that uh, as, we, as we work through this text today that we will understand uh, the overall arching narrative of this passage, um, but Lord, that even more so, we will learn what this says about you, about your character, and about who you are as our God, the one that we are obliged to obey and follow. Give us, Lord, a, a right understanding of your law, and help us to see Ezra's example of teaching, doing, and, and living out the law, and studying the law. Help us to see that pattern, Father, and help us to commit ourselves to that as blood-bought believers and followers of Christ. Lord, help us to do all that he has commanded. Be with our time, Lord, and may you be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so to summarize the passage that we're looking at uh, this morning, um, looking back to last week, verses 1 through 10 give us a general account of Ezra's role in leading this second wave of exiles from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The remainder of the chapter then provides some particulars of Artaxerxes' actions in sanctioning and supporting Ezra. Okay, so we're going to look today at an official letter, probably uh, written on the king's letterhead. Okay, this is from Artaxerxes, the office of Artaxerxes, and he's showing um, at least a nominal reverence for the God of Israel. And he's demonstrating actually a great deal of trust and possibly even affection for Ezra. We're going to see in this letter that he extends an incredible amount of trust and he commits a large amount of financial support to this second wave of returning exiles into the Holy Land. 
And in so doing, I think what we're going to notice is that Artaxerxes possibly even unwittingly demonstrates submission to the one true God of heaven. That is a theme that I want to echo in our minds as we work through this passage. Uh, in, in unwittingly supporting uh, this God of heaven for, for un, maybe, maybe for some ungodly reasons, I think we're going to see that, uh, that, that Artaxerxes actually honors God by honoring Ezra and honoring God's law. And I think that we're going to hopefully be encouraged by that today. And at the end of this section, we're going to see that God's intervention within the heart of King Artaxerxes leads Ezra to a beautiful statement of worship and praise as we conclude this chapter. So to work through the text, uh, let's begin looking at verse 11 of Ezra 7. Verse 11 is going to convey to us the words of Ezra, identifying the next 15 verses as a copy of the letter from the king. Verses 12 through 26, just for anyone that's sort of keeping score of these things, verses 12 through 26 is actually originally written in Aramaic. That would be the official language of Babylonia, and we would expect that in a decree from the king. And then the final verses, 27 and 28, are going to return to Hebrew uh, as, as Ezra lets out a, a, a huge praise to God. But let's begin reading in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that you have been given, sorry, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Now let's stop right there for just a second and see if we can get our minds around what is happening here. First of all, in verse 12, I want us to note this phrase, God of heaven. God of heaven. This phrase is often used by Jews to distinguish the one true God from the pagan concepts of deity that they were surrounded by. Interestingly enough, though, this phrase is picked up here by King Artaxerxes and applied to Ezra's God. And we see in this actually a similarity in the language of Cyrus, whose decree sent the first wave of exiles some 70 years earlier out of uh, Jerusalem, and, I'm sorry, out of Babylon and into Jerusalem. This was the group that came with Zerubbabel. Ezra 1 verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, this is maybe just a little bit of sanctified speculation on my part, but the, the question I think has to come to mind here, do the pagan kings refer to the God of Israel as the God of heaven because the Jews were not permitted to worship God by images of earthly design? Is there a chance maybe that because the Jews refused to worship idols and worship their God in accordance with the typical practices of pagan peoples, is, is there any chance that that had begun to influence uh, the, the peoples of the land, so to speak, in the sense that they were seeing the God of Israel not as the God that could be found in this statue or in that statue or in this animal or in this uh, feature of nature, but rather simply put the God of heaven. I think the, that the, the purity with which God had demanded to be worshipped was beginning to distinguish the God of Israel from all of these other gods. Again, a little bit of speculation there, but, but keep in mind this idea that, uh, of the God of heaven, the God of heaven. We're going to see this again and again throughout this text. In verses 13 and 14, we notice that all who were willing to go with Ezra were given permission by Artaxerxes, the king. And they went with the blessing of, of the king and of his council. And this council, um, as, as the commentators will tell us, is very likely the council of seven that is referenced uh, in the book of Esther as men who had special access to the king, and they were said to sit in the first place or before the face of the king. And so, so if, if we needed maybe a modern-day sort of uh, understanding of this, it would be almost like the president and his cabinet, those special advisors who would speak to him and advise him. So according to the permission given by Ezra and his council, his cabinet, his advisors, um, this second wave of exiles were given permission to leave Babylonia and return to the Promised Land, the Holy Land. In verses 14 through 16, we see that Ezra was essentially, in this letter, given two tasks. First, he was to go and to evaluate the degree to which those who were currently living in Jerusalem were adhering to the laws of God. And he was then to deliver a rather large donation from the king to this temple in Jerusalem. So then in addition to the gifts of the king, um, they were told to collect donations from the Persian people, as well as the Jewish people who would remain in Babylon. Remember, there, were, there was, was not a situation where there was a mass exodus from Babylonia back to Jerusalem. This happened in three separate waves, and we talked about that a little bit last week. In verses 17 and 18, we see that money was given by the king, and it was collected from the people, and it was primarily to be used to make offerings to the God of Israel. We see, uh, we see that throughout this section that they were, they were very serious about supporting and funding the worship of God. And then on top of that, Ezra was given the freedom to use the remaining funds at his discretion. And we see from the, the very end of this chapter, we'll get to it later, that, that Ezra saw this as a great blessing that God would have provided for the beautification of his temple in this way. Well, in verse 19, we see that just as Cyrus had returned, the holy vessels of Jewish worship that Nebuchadnezzar had misused, Artaxerxes also saw to it that Ezra was given the necessary utensils for temple worship. 
and there's no reason for us to think that these were in fact the same vessels referenced in Ezra 1, but it just gives an additional indication that Artaxerxes had a significant knowledge of the Jewish worship and customs. Remember from the first 10 verses last week, we saw that, um, that Ezra found great favor in the eyes of the king, and undoubtedly he had great influence with the king because he was given whatever he asked for. So through this connection to Ezra, King Artaxerxes had a particular knowledge of the worship practices of the Jewish people. And this allowed him to support and, and, and even offer financial um, uh, support for this, this worship project. In verse 20, we note that uh, from this passage that the king promises also to provide whatever else might be needed from his own treasury. So as, as the gifts are being offered, as the funds are being collected, um, the king makes it clear that this is not the end of the support, that whatever else might be needed is to be taken from the king's own treasury. Well, let's continue in this passage just to get the lay of the land as we work through these, uh, this long section of Scripture. Return your attention, please, to, uh, to Ezra 7, back, back to verse 21. We see a continuation of the decree of King Artaxerxes. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Again, we see this reference to the God of heaven. Continuing in verse 22. This is up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by, again, the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Well, considering verses 21 and 22, we see this phrase, the province that is beyond the river. And that might sound a little strange to us, but when you consider the geography of the area, this is, this is a fairly typical phrase for people in Babylonia who would be to the east of the Tigris River to be referring to the land that was on the other side of, I'm sorry, I said Tigris, uh, it's, the, it's the Euphrates River in question here. Those to the east of the Euphrates River uh, making reference to the land that was on the opposite side, on the west side of the Euphrates River. So from their geographical perspective, this land in question over around Jerusalem and down through all of Judah, even Samaria might have the same reference, is the land that from their perspective is beyond the river. It would be uh, maybe a, a fitting way for those of us who don't like to drive over to Monroe, we could say we don't go to that land beyond the river, right? We like to stay over here uh, on our comfortable side of, of the river, right? Well, uh, similarly, the, the, the Babylonians, that was the use of that, of that phrase and that idiomatic expression. We see also in these verses that Artaxerxes has now gone beyond just a general support to a specific budget for Ezra in terms of funding and supporting this, uh, uh, th this second wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. We again see the, the use of the God of heaven phrase, but we see a listing of the amounts that are to be devoted to this, uh, to this return. We see that uh, there are certain amounts of talents of silver, we see that there are certain cores of wheat. 
We see baths of wine and oil, and some of those phrases might be a little bit tricky for us to recognize. I took the time to look up and do a little conversion of, of each one of these to kind of help us get the picture of what is being transported and what is being purchased for the worship in the house of God. And we see that a talent is equal to about 75 pounds. So if 100 talents of silver are offered, that's going to be 7,500 pounds of silver. And by today's conversion rate, if my math doesn't let me down, that's about $2.5 million worth of silver that was guaranteed for the worship in the house of God. We also see that about 100 cores of wheat would be offered, would be purchased. A core is the equivalent of six bushels. So if you can imagine six bushel baskets per core, we're looking at 600 bushels of wheat. That's a fair bit of wheat. Um, a bath. Now, around my house, a bath is probably 60 gallons. That's about how much water it takes for one of my children to take a shower. But with, within, the, uh, within the, the conversion of this bath, uh, we're talking about six gallons. So 100 baths of oil or 100 baths of wine um, would be 600 gallons here. So we see this is no small contribution. This is no small token of support. This is a significant um, contribution and commitment by King Artaxerxes. Again, I'm going to keep calling him by the wicked King Artaxerxes. We have no reason to think that he is um, some type of converted follower of God here. Um, yet he has been somehow impacted by Ezra and by the testimony of the law of God. So it does cross my mind to ask this question, and again, maybe some sanctified speculation here. Um, how would Artaxerxes have arrived at these numbers for the budget? And I think two theories are, are plausible. First of all, given the round number of 100, 100, 100, it could be that Artaxerxes simply wanted to make a big splash. He wanted to say, hey, do, do 100 of everything that's needed for, uh, for the worship of God in the temple. That's possible. However, if we look um, at uh, chapter 7, verse 4, we see that the hand of God was on Ezra, and the king granted him all that he asked for. So it is also reasonable to consider the possibility that this offering of King Artaxerxes was in fulfillment of a request made by Ezra. Um, either way, um, the extent of this budget is large and it is, it is communicated to those who are in charge of the king's treasury. Okay, the king's wealth would not have all been kept in one location, but there would have been repositories throughout his, throughout his kingdom of, uh, of wealth, uh, and he would have the ability to more than accomplish this um, this uh, pledge that he had made to support Ezra. Well, considering verse 24, we also see that uh, the Babylonian IRS was issued essentially a cease and desist order regarding those who served in the Jewish temple. Okay, we see that list of, uh, of people there that were not to be imposed any type of tax or tribute. Verse 24, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. So they were given, and I don't, I don't know this to be a fact, but it would appear this is one of the first tax-exempt statuses that we see for a religious, uh, a religious outfit. And uh, we're, of course, we're, we're thankful for that, but we should not presume that that will always be the case. We, we live under the blessings of tax-exempt status here in the United States. We see that Ezra's uh, worshipers also experience that. 
Um, but this was an act, I think, uh, a further act on the part of Artaxerxes that demonstrates that he was under the control of a sovereign God in his life. We're going to see that as we work through this text. Well, looking back also to verse 23, I'd like for us to notice another um, maybe interesting tidbit to draw out of this text. First of all, the motivation of Artaxerxes is always a question. But I think that as we, as we read verse 23, we can see um, maybe a glimpse into the true motivation. And it's going to be important for us to remember, again, that Artaxerxes is not assisting Ezra out of a converted heart or out of some type of desire to genuinely serve and worship the one true God. I think we see that when we recognize in verse 23 that he is suggesting that whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Lest, in other words, unless or in case, his wrath might be against the realm of the king and his sons. So if you consider the mindset of a, of a pagan ruler in ancient Babylon, um, they were very polytheistic people. They, they saw lots of gods. Everywhere they looked, they saw a god, right? And for, for, the, uh, for Artaxerxes, the king, it's actually fairly reasonable to expect him to want to stay on the good side of all these gods, to keep them um, from doing something that might upset his kingdom. So in one sense, the pagan rulers often thought of themselves as gods, but in another sense, they, they knew that they needed to be careful of all the quote-unquote other gods, even if one of those other gods happened to be the one true God, the God of heaven, as we see again and again. Well, let's continue with the next two verses of this text. Look at verse 25. We see the continuation of the decree of Artaxerxes. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So in these two verses, we see that not only has Artaxerxes funded and supported Ezra's return to Jerusalem, he has also appointed him as basically law and order within the province. He's given him a wide range of authority and responsibility to set up judges, to teach the laws of his God, and even to exercise a punitive administration of those laws. In other words, he has been given the task of punishing those who would be in violation of the law of God. Again, let's not lose sight of the fact that these decrees are being handed down by a godless pagan ruler. Imagine if Artaxerxes were living under the administration of the law of God. Things would not go well for him. Yet he is giving Ezra the responsibility of enacting those moral laws of God uh, upon the people. In verse 26, we see that anyone who does not obey these laws is to be punished accordingly. So it's one thing to issue laws, but without punishment, those laws are just suggestions, right? And in this case, we see that the law of the land was, in fact, to be the law of the God of heaven. Well, all of this really put um, Ezra in a wonderful position, um, a blessed position, and he um, expresses his gratitude to God in verses 27 and 28. 
We see back in the words of Ezra now, this is no longer King Artaxerxes speaking, this is Ezra, as he exclaims, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. These last two verses now record the words of Ezra as he offers praise to God. God has placed it in the heart of the king, a desire to fund the temple worship in Jerusalem and to have the law of God reinstituted in the Holy Land. And in verse 28, we see that God has demonstrated an unwavering love to Ezra in the presence of the king and all of his counselors. And this has been an occasion for great encouragement to Ezra as he is now amassing men from Israel to accompany him in this task of setting up uh, the law of God as the law of the land. Well, with this overview and this brief commentary on today's narrative, I hope that we can see sort of a picture of what is happening here. And as we take time to think about this, I'd like for us to keep it in light of last week's study of the pattern that Ezra has given us to learn, to do, and to teach the law of God. With, this, with these thoughts in our mind, I want us to consider a couple of theological truths that become apparent as we think through and work through these actions of King Artaxerxes in this letter. The first theological truth is this. God's law is a common grace. God's law is a common grace. Now, I want to define some terms because if we just leave that thought out there, possibly we could, we could start some confusion. But let's, let's understand, first of all, what it means for something to be a common grace. If we could just create a definition for common grace, it would be something like this. Common grace is the general blessing or goodwill of God, which is enjoyed by all of his creation, whether they be reprobate or redeemed. Okay? Common grace is the general blessing or goodwill of God, which is enjoyed by all of his creation, be they reprobate or redeemed. Now, to, to offer some biblical support for this, this is, this is simply stated the fact that God is a good God. God is not merely a good God to those he has redeemed. He is a good God. And we can proclaim the goodness of God in all circumstances. Consider Psalm 145 and verse 9. We're told there by the psalmist, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. As we consider the lessons of Ezra in reference to the laws of God and the clarity that they bring regarding God's holy nature, let us not forget that it is also in his nature to be a loving father and a loving God. Remember that God is by definition love. From John 1, uh, verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, we see, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. That would make a really good children's song. Someone should write a children's song about 1 John 4, 7 and 8, right? Well, while God's most obvious demonstration of his loving character is seen in his gift of redemption through Christ, 
he also shows a kind of general beneficence, general goodwill to all men. And just as last week we saw the abiding validity of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, we can also look to Matthew chapter 5 to understand this concept of common grace. I want you to take a moment and turn uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I want us to look to verse 43. We examined uh, the, the words of Christ in Matthew 5 last week as we established the abiding validity of the law that Christ came not to do away with the law but to fill, fulfill the law. And here in Matthew 5 and verse 43, we're going to get a glimpse into what it means for God to have common grace for all mankind. Matthew 5, verse 43 reads, You have heard it said, back up here, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the general rule of the day. And is that not the general rule of today? We love those who love us. We treat them well if they treat us well. It's a very quid pro quo approach to, to our favor and our love. But, look at verse 44. Jesus tells us, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the command for us to love our enemies and pray for those who are persecuting us is rooted in the actions of God. Look at verse 45. Do this, in other words, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Again, the God who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus calls us then to imitate our Father in heaven by loving those who are our enemies. Let us not forget that prior to our regeneration and conversion, every person in here was an enemy of God. So we need to praise God and thank Him for His unspeakable love, the love that, that finds its origin within the Godhead, within the interpersonal love of the Trinity, has spilled over in the person of Christ to us today. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. Furthermore, in, in chapter 5 here of Matthew, Jesus bases this call to imitate our Father in God's general love for all of mankind. This is an illustration, probably the best illustration, of God's common grace. Now, sometimes just the words we use can be tricky. There's nothing common about God's common grace. We use the term common grace here merely to distinguish this universal grace of God from the particular saving grace which the elect experience in their redemption. But it's crucial that we recognize that any sort of, uh, sorry, anything that is short of instant judgment and damnation from God represents an incredible act of mercy and restraint on God's part. One aspect of that restraint is the fact that God's wrath is held back from us. And he does that oftentimes by withholding the evil intentions of mankind. I want us to also look to Psalm 81 here as we discuss this. When God chooses to execute judgment on people, oftentimes we see this described in Scripture as God turning them over to themselves. Okay, so God's common grace provides for us this sense of restraining evil, withholding people from the evil that they would ultimately turn themselves over to. And in Psalm 81, we read, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. So in a very real way, the common grace of God represents restraint 
restraint of his own wrath and also restraint of the evil that would naturally occur within a fallen world. I think this is going to be important for us to recognize as we talk about the law of God and how it impacted the, the, the kingdom of wicked King Artaxerxes. If we need further illustration of the restraint of God and the language that's used here, we can find that in Romans chapter 1. And we won't turn there today, but I would invite you to read Romans 1, uh, beginning in verse 18, and see how many times God describes his judgment as giving them over, giving them over to the lust of their hearts. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the natural state of fallen humanity is for God to be continually restraining, holding people back from their natural inclination toward death and destruction. And the moral law of God that he has given us, that we described last week, often serves as a tool by which God provides this restraint. I referenced last week the three uses of the law. As we talked about three types of law, I said there were also three uses of the law. John Calvin articulates it this way. He says that the law of God functions in three ways. It functions, first of all, as a mirror, reflecting our sinfulness back to us. If you stand before a mirror in a well-lit room, you can see all the details of your physical appearance. Well, likewise, the law of God presents to us a detailed picture of how foul and how vile we are before a perfect holy God. Okay, the second use of the law that Calvin points to is the restraint that comes within the civil realm. So when the law of God is given to a people, be they regenerate or unregenerate, saved or lost, there is still a common good that comes upon that society because they adhere to the law of God. In other words, regardless of whether a person is saved or lost, society is better when we don't kill one another. Regardless of whether people are saved or lost, society is, is made better when men and women stay married and they don't commit adultery. Right? We could go down both tables of the law, of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and we can see that there is a common grace and benefit to the law of God. Well, the third use of the law is as an ongoing standard of sanctification for believers. We don't need to get to that today. It's the second use of the law that I want us to observe as we consider Artaxerxes' actions in this letter. Artaxerxes had come under the effect of Ezra. And that happened because God had worked certain things within the heart of Artaxerxes. He had established within him the idea that this God of heaven was somehow different than the other gods that he was acquainted with. He saw within Ezra characteristics of a man who studied. He, he had devoted his heart to study the law of God. He had devoted his life to living the law of God, and he was well equipped to teach the law of God. And Ezra observed that, and he saw that. And by the providential working of God within wicked king uh, Artaxerxes, Ezra was placed in a position to be a benefit to the entire society. This reaction to the law of God by pagans should not be surprising to us. As a matter of fact, it was anticipated and somewhat predicted in Deuteronomy. And this is a passage that I'd like for us to turn to together. Look to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we think about what it means for the law of God to be an example 
to uh, people around us. Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Um, if you fall asleep in the first five verses, make sure you work up, wake up for verse 6. That will be, the, that will be the, the, the passage in question that I want us to really consider. But, but for now, let me give some context. Begin with Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now listen to verse 6. Keep them, keep these laws, and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is precisely what Artaxerxes demonstrated in this letter. The amazement of the wicked nation surrounding Israel. They saw the law of God. They saw the worship of God's people. And they saw the difference. And they were amazed as they asked the question, what kind of God demonstrates this level of perfection and justice and holiness? So this is why it is important for us to understand the law of God is, in fact, a common grace to the lands in which it is enacted. And as, as followers of Christ today, when we learn the law, when we live the law, and when we teach the law, that is the commands of the perfect righteousness of Christ, we demonstrate to the world around us the beauty of our Savior. Okay, theological truth number two is shorter than theological truth number one. So, so hang in there. We, we're, we're, we're much more than halfway through. Theological truth number two is this. God's sovereignty extends even to the affairs of wicked leaders. God's sovereignty extends even to the affairs of wicked leaders. Consider Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. Again, a reference to the God of heaven. He does all that he pleases. Because our God is wholly other, in other words, he is not bound by the constraints of time and the circumstances of people and the actions of men. He sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In other words, if God desires it, he brings it about. Okay? We see this reference to the God of heaven again and again. Ezra 7 and verse 27. Notice what, what Ezra says here. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts such a thing as this into the heart of the king. So everything that we've noted from Artaxerxes in this letter today and this common grace of the law of God being enacted on the people of the land here, all of this was being brought about because God had put it in the heart of the king to do this. In this case, the heart is not speaking merely of the organ that plumps, pumps blood carrying oxygen to the rest of our body. There's more in view with the heart of the king than just that. 
This should be seen rather as the, the source of the king's desire and volitional will. So the source from which the, the king gets his motivation to do things, that's the heart that we're talking about. And, and that's the heart that has been impacted by God. Literally, Ezra is saying, who puts such desires into the king's will? Okay? Well, we know who put those desires into the king's will because Proverbs 21 teaches us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So imagine at this time the most powerful man on the planet, King Artaxerxes, being nothing more than a trickle of water within the hand of Almighty God who turns that water and pours it at his discretion where he desires. That's a big God, okay? And this is not the only example that we see of God sovereignly intervening and ordaining the actions of wicked men. Consider Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 10. In chapter 9, God has identified Israel as the object of his wrath for their unfaithfulness and their disobedience. Obedience to what, we might say? Well, their disobedience to the law of God. That's what they had disobeyed, and they had set themselves in the target of God's wrath. In chapter 10, uh, God continues this condemnation of Israel, and then he identifies Assyria, wicked Assyria, as the instrument of God's wrath. This is another passage that I would ask you to turn to. I know that we've seen this before, but it's important for us to be reminded. Look to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. I want to pick this up in verse 5. Isaiah 10 verse 5. When we are discouraged by the evil that we see around us, and today in our pastoral prayer time, James mentioned the fact that we have a change of leadership in some positions within our state, and we are seeing chaos on the world scene, and evil of, of all stripes and all kinds. Um, obviously, we, we see the, the newspaper every day with our own nation and the, uh, the chaos that seems to be present. This passage, to me, offers a source of great comfort. Look to Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5. We read here, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them. That is against the nation of Israel being called a godless nation for their disobedience. And against the people of my wrath I command him, him being Assyria or the king of Assyria. He commands him to take spoil and seize and plunder and tread them down like the mire of the streets. So God has commanded the persecution at the hand of the Assyrians of the nation of Israel. But then notice that Assyria does not really see themselves as carrying out the sovereign plan of God. Look at verse 7. But he, that is the king of Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. By the way, this is the same heart that is a stream of water in the hand of God. Okay? Don't forget that. This is the, this is the heart that is the, of the king, and it is the heart that is directed by the sovereign decree of God. The king of Assyria says in verse 8, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? This is simply the king of Assyria saying, Have I not conquered lands before? Have I not taken peoples? Have I not destroyed their puny little gods who were even greater than the even punier gods of Israel and Samaria? 
It's kind of a been there, done that mentality on the part of Assyria. Verse 12, next part of the story, verse 12. But when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, in other words, his wrath being poured out on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, this is the king of Assyria saying again, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Is this not an arrogant king? This is the lone superpower of the world at this time, claiming that the peoples of the nations are like eggs for him to gather for breakfast. Here, at this point, the prophet Isaiah asks a rhetorical question that is almost mocking, and I want us to consider this in contrast to the arrogance of the king of Assyria. Verse 15, the prophet speaking for God, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. The question here is, how is it that the tool boasts over the one who swings the tool? The point is this, every human ruler, righteous or wicked, is nothing more than a tool in the hand of a perfectly and completely sovereign God. There is no such thing as a semi-sovereign God. God is either sovereign or he is not. And we use that word sovereign to the point that I'm afraid it tends to lose meaning. So let me take a second and inject a little bit of meaning in the word sovereign. To be sovereign is to be unbounded by anything else. To be sovereign is to be unencumbered by the desires and the wills and the purposes of anyone other than yourself. Our God is in the heaven. He does as he pleases. Every governmental system in that case, then, becomes simply an expression of God's authority. If God is the lone source of authority, every expression of authority has to fall under the purview of the one that the authority comes from. All authority is, therefore, what we would call derivative authority. It's derived from the primary source. So because he alone is the source of all authority, and because we have seen in Proverbs and Isaiah and Ezra that God is in absolute control of the desires and action of kings, even wicked kings and rulers, we can have complete confidence in the most tumultuous of times that our God sovereignly reigns over the course of human events. And there is nothing that falls outside of his complete control. God is not waiting on us to create the proper political environment in order to bring about his decree. He's simply not. Now, we had an election day yesterday, and I almost forgot it. I, I was reminded last minute that, oh, today's voting day, right? So we should all participate in, in the gracious privilege that we have of having input into our leadership. Absolutely, we should do that. But let us not con confuse this and put the, the cart ahead of the horse, right? God is not waiting on us to get things right for him to rule. He is currently ruling. He is more than capable of bringing about his perfect decree in spite of the disobedience of kings and rulers and governments. And the examples that we see in the Assyrians, uh, with the Assyrians in Isaiah, and the example we see with the Persians under Artaxerxes in the, in the book of Ezra that we're studying, that all demonstrates this. 
Another example, by the way, and, and we, we won't take time to go here, but this afternoon, read Acts chapter 2. Read the sermon of Peter. Notice that when Peter is confronting the Jews with their travesty of sacrificing and crucifying their Messiah, he tells them that they crucified their Messiah, and they used the wicked hands of the Romans to do that. But all of that was to fulfill the perfect plan of God for our redemption. So if the most wicked and sinful thing that has ever happened on earth, the sacrifice of Messiah, has rebounded to the greatest good, the salvation of souls to the glory of God, how much more can we trust that God is sovereignly ordaining the events of mankind? Well, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, uh, in the seventh chapter of Ezra, let's keep just a few things in mind here. We serve a God whose dominion is not limited in any way by human actions or circumstances, and he will bring about his good purposes. Second thing to remember, one of those good purposes is the manifestation of his righteous standards found in his moral law. And this moral law of God is a gracious benefit. It is a common grace to all creatures, be they redeemed or reprobate. The third thing to take away from this today is that as blood-bought followers of Christ, we are uniquely positioned to study, to live, and to teach the commandments of Christ within the world around us. We are in a position to offer to the world what they need, and they don't even know what they need, but we have it. And as we follow the example of Ezra to learn, to live, and to teach the law and the, and the commands of God, let us do that with confidence, knowing that we are proclaiming the holiness of God to the world around us. We should do that in our words as well as our actions. May we remain faithful in obedience to God, and may the modern pagans around us echo the same sentiment that the ancient pagans asked when they said, what kind of God is this who has such a righteous law? Let us proclaim the truth of the gospel. Let us live up to the perfect standards of God's holiness as we observe his law, and let us do that in such a way that it brings glory to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we have a tall order in front of us today, knowing that we have been given a standard of perfect righteousness that we cannot ever live up to. But God, we know that we have been given a Savior who in all points maintained with perfection not only the, the legal demands of the law, but the heart position that should accompany that in the actions of Christ as well as in the, uh, in the thoughts of his heart and his will and his desires, Lord, he never once violated a single principle of your perfect standard of righteousness. He was, in fact, the God-man, truly God, truly man, living a life of perfect obedience, of perfect righteousness, so that he alone can be the substitutionary sacrifice that is required for our salvation. Father, let us not forget the, the beautiful perfection of what Christ accomplished in his life. Of course, God, we thank you for his death. We praise you for his resurrection, and we glorify him as he's ascended to rule and reign at your right hand. But, God, this all began with the incarnation, with this great mystery that the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh and come and tabernacle to live among us. And live among us he did. He lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life so that he could be clearly identified as the one who takes away the sins of the world. 
Father, we praise you for this, and we ask for, for strength. We ask for obedience in our lives. Uh, we ask for a, an ever-growing commitment to live in light of what Christ has done and to glorify you accordingly. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.